I've been asked this morning to talk about the ministry of the laity, the history of the ministry of the laity, the priesthood of the believer. Where do we find it in the Bible? What does the Bible say to us about it? How do we see it played out in history? That's what we're going to discuss this morning. I know we've prayed. I'm going to leave this once again. Father, I want to register my dependence upon you before these my brothers and ask that the Spirit of God would superintend our time together. I pray that you would be pleased to open our eyes and give us the ability to see and then give us the courage of our convictions to put it into practice. I pray that I would not be an obstacle or a barrier in communication, that you would override my limitations by the power of your Spirit to bring the truth of the Word of God into the lives of each of us in a way that will change us. To the praise of your glory in Jesus Christ, we ask this. Amen. The book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. That's the word Genesis means. It's the beginning of many things, and not the least of which, the beginning of the laity and the ministry of the laity. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. And one of you will kindly read verses 3 through 5. Genesis 4, verses 3 through 5. And in the process of time, it came to pass that King brought an offering of the seed of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the first lamb of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Yes. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall, the sin of Adam and Eve, their expulsion from the garden. In chapter five, 4, we have the institution of the sacrificial system. Now, we're not made privy to how it comes into existence. It's a fait accompli by the time we get to the fourth chapter. All we know is that they are in process of offering these sacrifices. And, of course, the conflict arises between Cain and Abel regarding the sacrifice. Again, uh, we're left to speculate as to why one sacrifice was accepted and the other was rejected. Later on, in the Bible, it tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And evidently, as God instituted the sacrificial system, he insisted on a blood sacrifice. And Cain refused to bring of an animal and brought of the fruit of the earth instead. And God said to him, in essence, you know the problem. You understand where it's at. Clean up your act and everything's going to be copacetic. If you don't, the problem's with you and nobody else. And of course, Cain pouted, got angry, killed his brother, we have the first murder. I mention this to you, not to talk about murder, but to talk about the beginning of the ministry of the laity. Because from the very outset, we find that every man offers his own sacrifice. 
This was the priesthood of the believer. And so we see that each believer offers his own sacrifice whenever he wants, wherever he wants. It's his choice. As we see this played out, for example, in the book of Genesis, we find that each man of God offers his sacrifices wherever he wants. For example, turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20. Notice what happens to Noah after he gets off the boat. Somebody read that. Yes. See, God didn't tell him he had to do that. That was just something that he decided he would do. When he got off the boat, he built an altar, and he offered blood sacrifices to the Lord. And so we see it is throughout the book of Genesis. Abraham, when he's at Peniel, he offers a sacrifice. When he goes down to Hebron, he offers a sacrifice. He's up at Bethel, he offers a sacrifice. No particular day of the week, no particular order. Just whenever he felt he ought to do this. And this was the way it was from the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden until the time of the Exodus. When God decided to take the children of Israel from captivity out of the land of Egypt and bring them by way of Mount Sinai into the promised land, at Mount Sinai, he took the priesthood out of the hands of the ordinary believer and put it into the hand of the professional. And he designated one tribe, that is the tribe of Levi, to be the priestly tribe. And not just the tribe of Levi, more particularly the house of Aaron. And he said, of the house of Aaron only can men offer sacrifices. And they, and they alone are able to do it. Now, Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that there are two reasons why God did this. The first was to give the inadequacy of man's way. The second, to give a picture of God's way. To show the inadequacy of man's way was obvious. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sin. In that repetition of offering a sacrifice day after day after day, priest after priest after priest, as he went through this lineage, it became abundantly clear that man could not propitiate for his own sins. He was incapable of doing it. And also it says in the book of Hebrews that it was a picture of God's way, a preview of coming attractions, if you would. The word that Hebrews uses is shadow. For example, in a large city like Cleveland, on a sunny day, you walk down the street, and as you're alongside of a tall building, you'll see a shadow come across from around the building. And you don't know who it is that's around the corner, but you know somebody is there. You know something about it. For example, you know if it's a truck or a cat or a human. And that's the way it was in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was a shadow of that which God would be doing in the person of Jesus Christ. It wasn't a real clear picture. 
but it was a preview of what God would be doing in the person of Jesus Christ. So that was the reason. These are the two reasons then why he institutes the Levitical order. To show the inadequacy of man's way, to give a picture of God's way. Now in those early days, they did not take kindly to the taking of the priesthood out of the hand of the ordinary believer. As a matter of fact, in the Exodus, there were a group of men surrounding Dathah, Koran, and Abiram who came to Moses and said, Moses, you take too much upon yourself. You have taken the priesthood from us. The priesthood belongs to us. We resent your taking it from the ordinary believer and putting it into the hand of the pro. We want to be able to do that ourselves. And Moses, being a meek man, said, well, let's take it before God and see what God says. And God says, Moses, why don't you step aside for a moment and let me show you what I think of that idea. And God opens the earth, and Dathan, Korah, and Abiram, and everything that belongs to them, falls in. God closes the earth. Then God takes fire from heaven and destroys the 120 leaders who were with him and says, are there any other questions? <laughs> well, the people said, Moses, you dirty rat, you sick God on it. Hendrickson translation, of course, you understand. And God says, Moses, step aside, let me show you what I think of that. 32,000 more died of the plague. And God says, are there any other questions? And the people said, well, we think we're beginning to understand. We think we're getting it. Now, the priesthood of the professional lasted for approximately 1,500 years. That is from Mount Sinai till the death of Christ on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened? Yes, but how do you know that happened, Sal? What took place at the death of the cross that let us know that we all became priests? Pardon? Yes, the temple. The veil was split from top to bottom. When was it split? At his death. Not his resurrection, at his death. On Good Friday, when Jesus gave up his spirit to the Father, the veil was ripped, signifying that we now have access into the Holy of Holies. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that this means now that every one of us have free access into the presence of God again like it was prior to Mount Sinai. It's as though God took us back to the days before the Exodus and said we're going to reinstitute that which took place before Moses came onto the scene so that every man has the right to enter into the presence of God whenever he wants, wherever he wants. So the New Testament talks a great deal about the priesthood of the believer. Let's take a look at a couple of the verses that deal with that. I want some volunteers who will come back and get them. Who will take 1 Peter 2.9? Thank you. Who will take Revelation 1.6? Okay. Ephesians 4.11-13. All right. And then Acts 8, verse 4. All right. Let's take... First Peter 
Nice and loud. Yes, Steve. You are a royal priesthood. God has called you to be his priests. Revelation 1.6. Who has that? And has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. See, he has made us a kingdom of priests to serve him. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, we see this played out in Paul's teaching. Okay, he gave gifted men apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, to equip the saints that the saints might do the work of the ministry that the body of Christ may be edified. It was never God's intent that the professionals do the ministry. It was God's intent, says the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, that the professional equip the saints that the saints might do the work of the ministry. Are we together? That is God's plan. Yes. We do? How so? Let's talk about that for a moment, Mike. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter... 20. I'm sorry, Dave. Adele? I think it starts at about verse 26. Yeah, Matthew 20, 26. I think that's about where it is. Somebody start reading there and I'll tell you if we're on target. 2026. Okay, keep going. Okay. You remember the disciples were arguing among one another about who was going to get to sit on his right hand and on his left. The truth of the matter is the mother of the sons of Zebedee aced them out. That's what happened. They got to him first and all the other disciples were indignant. Not because there was a little competition going on, but because they lost. And so Jesus says, time out, time out. That's how the world behaves. The world looks for people going around, finding somebody who will minister to them. But that's not the way you're going to behave. What I want you to do is I want you to go around looking for people to whom you can minister. That's exactly what I did. The Son of Man did not come to be ministered to, we talked about that last night, but to minister and to give. Got that? Now, now gentlemen, I can't, I can't conceive of Jesus saying it any more clearly than that. 
Don't go around looking for people to minister to you. Go around looking for people to whom you can minister. Isn't that what it says? Yes. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Let's get Jesus first. What did Jesus say? Don't go around looking for people that can minister to you. Look for people to whom you can minister. That's pretty clear, isn't it, Mike? Okay. So what do we do? We go around looking for people to minister to us. As a matter of fact, we are so audacious that we're, we even call him our minister. We take him around with it. I'd like you to meet my minister. It's, it's like we've hired our own private Levite or something. <laughs> and then we get ticked off at him if he doesn't meet our expectations. Gentlemen, I work with the laity. And one of the major problems I run across as I work with business and professional men across the country is my pastor is not meeting our needs. I hear it again and again and again. And gentlemen, I submit to you that it is in direct violation of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20. Don't do that. We don't enjoy our church. It's not meeting the needs of our kids. Friend, church was never supposed to meet the needs of your kid. God gave you that responsibility. Now, if you want to delegate that responsibility to somebody else, that is between you and God, but don't blame the guy to whom you delegated if it doesn't meet your expectations. God made it at your doorstep, not at somebody else's. I'm saying to you, I'm suggesting, exactly what I'm suggesting, Mike. I'm suggesting to you that the system in its corrupt form is simply meeting a need that the people insist on having met. When it's true in government, we all love to take pot shots at the U.S. Congress and the way that they spend our money. The truth of the matter is they're doing it because that's what they have been told by us we want them to do. And it's the same thing with attorneys. You know, we all love to shoot at attorneys. Attorneys are simply meeting the needs of people who demand that that be done. If people weren't so litigious, we wouldn't have the problem. The problem is not the attorney. The problem is the person who simply goes to the civil courts to solve any problem as a course of first resort rather than last resort. That's the same in our churches. The pastors are there because the people insist on the Levitical system. Not a New Testament system. Are we together? Yes. 
Absolutely, Tom. Absolutely. No, I'm not suggesting to you that churches are wrong. I'm saying that if you are looking for somebody to minister to you, you're wrong. That's all I'm saying. If God lays it on your heart to give to the work of the ministry, that's fine. But never participate in the ministry vicariously. That is not the calling of God in your life. Yeah, also minister to you. See, it's the thing we were talking about last night, gentlemen. My brothers minister to me in an incredible way. See, one of the things I enjoy the most about the layman's ministry is they feed me. They feed me in a remarkable way. I can't tell you the insights that I get in my walk with God as a result of interacting with guys like you. But that is not my expectation. When I don't come, I don't come to a meeting like this saying, okay, yeah, minister to me, and I'm going to get ticked off at you if you don't. I come to minister. It's the same thing I do when I go home. I don't go home to be ministered unto. I go home to minister. Now, in the process of ministering, I get ministered to but that's ancillary. That is not primary. My children minister to me in an incredible way, but they minister to me as I minister to them. And my expectation is never that they minister to me, but the other way around. Are we together? That was the whole point of last night's talk. That we do not look to sources other than God for the meeting of our needs. And the whole problem that we have and I call it the problem we have in the body of Christ today is that we have built illegitimate expectations regarding what the ministry ought to look like. God did not call you, gentlemen, to go find you a Levite. God called you to be a minister of Jesus Christ, an ambassador of his, as Don so eloquently talked to us about it just a couple of moments ago, out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're an ambassador for Christ in verse 20. You're involved in verse 19, he said, in the ministry of reconciliation. Is that not so? It doesn't mean that people will not minister to you. But it means that you do not look to people to minister to you. There's all the difference in the world between those two. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's define the ministry for a moment. How do you give what you don't have? Good question. How do you give what you don't have? 
Gentlemen, oh, oh, I'll give you a frank evaluation of this gray-haired old man here, all right? I've walked with Jesus for over 40 years. My perception of myself is that I am very marginal in my gifts. I know how to preach, but I'm not a great preacher. I know how to write, but I'm not a great writer. I know how to think, but I'm certainly not a great thinker. As a matter of fact, I am very mediocre by all measurements and standards of evaluation. So I ask myself that question. What do I have to give? What do I have? I'll tell you what I have, gentlemen. I have the two things that are in greatest demand. There are two things that are absolutely irresistible in the lives of people. You're a sucker for them just like I am. Everybody is a sucker for these two things. You know what they are? Pardon? Being loved and being served. Those two are irresistible. And I submit to you that loving and serving people in Jesus' name is the ministry. That is the ministry. By definition, it is loving and serving people in Jesus' name. It doesn't take great endowments, special gifts. Yes? In John 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. You bet. We had a passage, Acts 8, verse 4. We have that hanging. Let's go grab that one for a moment. Who had that one? Fire away. Okay. Now remember the context there, Michael, who the they are? Okay. The they were everybody but the apostles. This is surrounding the persecution of the church because of the death of Stephen. When Stephen was stoned, the church was persecuted, and it says that they went everywhere except the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem. And they, that is, the ordinary saints, went everywhere preaching the word. And then he gives us a little microcosm of that with Philip. Philip is not Philip the apostle. This is Philip who becomes the deacon in chapter 6. And he goes down to Samaria and the whole city turns out for Christ. First CBNCer, by the way, is Philip. A layman who goes and reaches a city for Christ. And then to show the worth of the individual, he pulls him out of that very fruitful ministry and sends him down to Ethiopia, the Ethiopian eunuch, to lead one guy to Christ. That's the ministry of the laity, gentlemen. And that, gentlemen, is what gave the vitality and impetus to the work of God in those early years of the New Testament church. 
men and women understood that they were empowered by God and commissioned by God to do the work of the ministry. And they did it whenever and wherever they were, seeking to minister, to give their lives in exchange for people. And as a result of that, the church grew. And it prospered. But what happened was that as it grew and as it prospered, paralleling it was a tremendous amount of heresy. And thinking men looked at that and said to themselves, that's not not to be. And so what they tried to do is they tried to root out the heresy. And they understood that they had no mechanism, no vehicle for doing it. In the Old Testament system, they did. Because in the Old Testament system, they had a theocracy. And in a theocracy, the church and the state are married. But in the New Testament, there was no marriage between the church and the state. And so they had no, no mechanism whereby they could say to this guy, hey, stop preaching your heresy. Because it was the ministry of the laity. And so as the church grew, the heresy prospered. Are we together? How do you define heresy? Biblical aberrations, the Gnostics, the Donatists, the Monetists, there was a whole slug of them. They came up. Would legalism be a modern No, legalism is a problem, but not as what we would call it a heresy. As a matter of fact, a lot of the New Testament is, literature is written trying to curb heresy. Take, for example, 1 Timothy. Most of 1 Timothy is written for the purposes of trying to, to stop the abuse and excesses of heretical thinking. John, John's epistles are a, a curb of Gnosticism which simply argued that there was a special knowledge that only the elite could get. Now, while this was going on, there was a slow evolutionary process taking place in the church. It didn't happen overnight, little by little by little. The Old Testament system began to creep in to the New Testament. The pastors began to be called priests. The Lord's table was called a sacrifice. The Lord's uh, the supper was called a sacrifice. The table was called an altar. And more and more, they began to borrow the Old Testament paraphernalia to give definition to the New Testament system. And this desire to curb the heresy and this bringing of the Levitical system back into the church are related. Because the church leaders saw the Old Testament system as a means of control. Because in the New Testament, there is no mechanism for control. And it all came together beautifully when Constantine converted in the first part of the 4th century. And overnight, the church changed from becoming 
a persecuted minority to a ruling majority. It was as spectacular a move as that of Joseph when he had breakfast in prison as a prisoner and lunch in the palace as the prime minister. One day they're hiding in the catacombs and the next day they're wearing ermine in the palace, coaching the emperor on how to run his empire. That's pretty heady stuff. They thought it did. Well, gentlemen, Constantine and those who followed in his train saw the church as a powerful, growing force that they very much wanted to be under the control of the state. The church had itchy fingers for the sword of the state so they could control the heresy and the unruliness of what was going on out there. Each was convinced that they would be able to control the other. And from that time on, this uneasy alliance between the church and the state was just simply a pull-tug competition between whose vote in the final analysis would count. That is the church or the state. And that war went on for centuries. And every society that became Christian in culture married the church and the state. The first exception to that was the United States of America. The United States of America, again, gentlemen, was the first time since the conversion of Constantine when a society that was Christian in culture deliberately separated the church and the state. First time. And when that happened in the United States of America you had tremendous growth and tremendous heresy. You're right back to where it was before Constantine. Because when you give the, the ministry to the ordinary believer, you're out of control. There's no mechanism for control. And most, if not all, but certainly most, of the great heresies in the Christian church in the 20th century, 19th and 20th century, have had their origin right here in the United States of America. 
whether it's Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses or whether it's Mary Baker Eddy or whoever else. There's, just, there's always a plethora of them. And if we can't manufacture them here, then, then we give visas to them as they come over on the boat. Because it is fertile ground. Again, because we have no mechanism for controlling it. In the early years of the church, when the ministry was in the hand of the ordinary believer, the church grew and flourished. When it was taken out of the hands of the ordinary believer, after the conversion of Constantine, and they finally had a mechanism for controlling it, the church shriveled. and grew very, very little for the next thousand years. There were expressions and endeavors on the part of the laity to reach out, but they were curbed. For example, there was a merchant from Lyon, France, called Peter Waldo, who said the ministry belongs to the ordinary believer. And that went over like a ham sandwich in a synagogue. <laughs> and that was the end of them. Thank you, thank you. I just want to see if you're awake. <laughs> I think that's a great illustration of it, Don. I think that is a great illustration of it. Yes. And, and, and it's interesting that in the United States of America, well, let's just go back for a moment. The evangelism pretty much shriveled up and died in institutional Christianity after the conversion of Constantine. It came to life again in the Friar Movement. The Friar Movement was a correction on the part of the Roman Church after the debacle of, of uh, Peter Waldo and the Waldensians. And when Francis of Assisi came and said, in essence, I want to do the same thing, the Pope says, you know, I don't think I'll try that again. I think what we'll do is we'll let him do it, but we'll do it under the control of the Church. And the Friar Movement was the first evangelistic effort, but we understand it was a lay effort. The friars were laymen. They were not pros as they tried to reach out. And then there was a plethora of them. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the church door of Wittenberg in 1517 and started what we know to be the Protestant Reformation, there was no emphasis on evangelism in the ministry of the laity. It really began almost 300 years later through a shoe cobbler by the name of William Carey in 1799 in England who, in essence, said to a group of fellow laymen, if you hold the rope, I'll climb into the pit. And they said, you got yourself a deal. And he launched 
the modern missionary movement. And the modern missionary movement was at its conception and has been ever since lay-led, gentlemen. I think I am correct in saying that in the United States of America, every indigenous denomination began as a lay missionary movement and it eventually became a denomination. One of the most recent expressions of that is the owners of this facility in which we're meeting, the CNMA, Christian Missionary Alliance, just became a denomination a few years ago. I remember vividly when they decided to do it. But these were all lay-led missionary movements that eventually became denominations. And even in the mainline denominations, like the Presbyterians, or like my own denomination, the Reformed Church in America, or the Anglican, or Church of England, all of these missionary movements began as lay-led movements. And with Carey and all of those who followed him, the pattern was always the same. The laymen started it, the professionals opposed it, God blessed it, the professionals took it over, and it died. And God raises up another group, and the same pattern goes again. The professionals oppose it, God prospers it, the professionals take it over, and it dies. And then God raises up another group. And the professional, I'm going to define the professional gland as anybody who has a vested interest in the system. Sure. That's not the first time I've had to deal with problems with me. Far away. Well, However, the difference is his priority. William Carey's priority was the biblical model of Christianity. William Carey, my brother, argued profusely with institutional Christianity in England to get launched in the missionary movement, and they steadfastly refused. He went over against them, or against their best wishes and, and their will. That's all I'm saying. I'm suggesting but, to but you... He had, a, he had a vested interest, but his interest was something other than what you're suggesting the professionals have. Now, I'm saying a vested interest in the system. He had a vested interest in God's system. Okay. It, it was, he was a pope. It was Ryland who stood up when he was first ordained, was received into fellowship in the ministry of, uh, well, the pastoral... Uh, fellowship, and I forget what exactly they called it, he stood up and said that when it was asked what they'd like to discuss at this particular meeting, he said, let's discuss missions. And Ryland said to him, young man, sit down. <coughs> when God wants to evangelize the heathen, he'll do it without your help or without mine. And then he added an insult on top of that. He said, you, young man, are an enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Gentlemen. The system itself is when you develop a vested interest in the temporal manifestation of what it is that God does. That's the system. The genius of the ministry of the laity is not that they are more godly or more focused than the clergy. It's just that when they want to look for temporal affirmation because man is addicted to creating, measuring, and controlling that he does it within the confines of his business. But the vocational Christian worker, whether he be a missionary or whether he be a pastor or a bishop, has no such temporal arena from which to get his affirmation. And so therefore what he does, he seeks to get it from the spiritual arena because he is a vocational Christian worker. And when he does that, the whole thing begins to change. His vocation. But when the missionary or the pastor or the vocational Christian worker and I don't care whether he's a navigator representative or a CBMC representative or a guy like myself. It doesn't make any difference who he is. When he looks around and he says, what do you do? What do you say? When you, what do you do? Me? Yeah. I say yeah. Yeah. Well, see, what was CBMC? What, what, what is that? What is that? There's a four initials. What does that mean? But what do you mean business ministry? What are you doing business ministry? Exactly. See? And what we try to do is we try to give definition to it. And so we say, well, it just happens to be the largest. It happens to be the biggest. It happens to be the most successful. Some way we try to do that. That's right. You see, and everybody, nobody is immune from that, gentlemen. Nobody is immune from that. Yes. Well, I'm sorry, you felt like you weren't a target up there. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you, you, you mentioned the, the Anglican Communion, the Episcopal Church being derived from, from lay ministry. Um, no, 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 no. I said the missionary movement was derived from lay ministry. Okay. Because it's very curious when you, when you also mentioned uh, the anti-establishment part in the Constitution. Less people here think our founding fathers were so well versed in the scriptures that they did it. It was because they had an established church, and the Anglican church was uh, established, it was an apostolic church, uh, a liturgical church, but they wrote this in so the Anglican church wouldn't take over this country. Um, so we have that denomination, which is my denomination to thank for no charity in school. That's why I would mention that.
<laughs> begins to accept the system that he didn't create, incidentally, and begins to focus his priority on the secular orientation of the ministry rather than the biblical orientation of the ministry. That's the problem. Well, That's the corruption. Yeah. I don't believe, and, and I say this because I know many pastors, I work with pastors all the time, and I know many pastors who are a victim of the, the church system and the priorities that the lay leaders in the church, and I'm talking about those who are elders, force upon the pastors and refuse to commit themselves to discipleship. And yet that's where the pastor's heart is. And that's what the pastor wants to see accomplished. A, a, a laity, if you like to use that term, of committed believers who live their lives for Christ, making disciples within their own families, within their own church, within their own community. And the lay leadership in the church I'm talking about elders and deacons, often resist that strenuously because that's what we pay you for. You are the ministry of this church. Do this work. We're just here to sit in the pew. You run the church, but you run it according to our dictates and standards. Now, that... Well, they have the authority. If I don't know whether we can really argue that. The point is, what are, the, what are our priorities? The, the laity doesn't have any special dispensation in, in terms of being free from corruption, nor does the professional minister. The problem is, where are our priorities? How are we living our lives? Are we living our lives according to 1 Peter 2.21, following Jesus, example that he set for us or are we living our lives according to our own particular desires wishes motivations gentlemen let me put it to you this way you've got a twofold problem problem number one is that when the hard-nosed businessman comes to the church he views it the same way he views his business. Give me the bottom line. Give me the P&L. How long you been here? How much growth is there? How much money's coming in? Market share. That's exactly right. That's exactly how he thinks. So what he does is he takes the template of his business and he brings it into the church. The other problem is that the church wants it. It feeds off of it. Let me ask you. Your church, I want to talk about generally, your church. If you go to the leadership of your church and you ask, how can I best serve Jesus Christ? I really want to make my life count. How can I best do that? How will he answer you, or they answer you? Pardon? 
Would you agree with that? They will define it in terms of the program of the church? I, yours may be an exception to that, but I want to say to you, gentlemen, 99 out of 100 of them, that's exactly how they will define it. They will define the ministry in terms of the program of the church. They will say, well, we need Sunday school teachers, or we, we need somebody to head the youth group, or we need somebody to do this. It's all within the confines of the local church. And so the problem feeds on itself. Now, I'm not saying to you, gentlemen, that I'm not saying that it's wrong, Sal. What I'm saying to you is that when you minister like that, that is not the ministry of the laity. That is the ministry that is an Old Testament model. That is not a New Testament model. The New Testament model is the average believer going out into his sphere of influence, representing Jesus Christ where he is. There is nothing wrong at all with organizing, but there is nothing in the Bible that requires it. What becomes wrong, men, and hear me well on this, what becomes wrong is if in your endeavor to organize, you begin to believe that there is something special about that which you brought into existence. Or that God has some unique commitment to it. Or, worse yet, that what God is doing is within this circle that I have created, and everything in it is church, and everything outside of it is parachurch. That's what becomes wrong. Well, it's not just the divisions in the body. It is a whole mindset that finds its genesis in the book of Leviticus. Men, I'm not against denominations, I'm not against organizations, I'm not against churches. <laughs> no buts, no howevers. Again, like I told you last night, the believer is free to do whatever the Bible does not prohibit. And there's nothing in the Bible that I'm aware of that prohibits it. My purpose for talking to you this morning was to draw attention to the fact that it is God's plan and he will have his way that the ministry belongs to the laity. And when it is taken out of the hands of the laity, for whatever reason, it tends to shrivel. And when it is placed in the hands of the laity, for whatever reason, it tends to prosper. And the reason I mentioned about these different missionary societies and organizations is it's a classic illustration of them. The ones that came into existence 30, 40 years ago were all lay-led. 
whether it was Cam Townsend of the Wycliffe Missionaries, or Bill Bright of Campus Crusade, or Dawson Trotman of the Navigators, or Jim Rayburn, who happened to go to seminary, they were, in their essence, lay-led. But what happens as they grow and they mature is what happens to any organization. I don't care if it's CBMC. I don't care what it is. What happens is it takes on a life of its own. Instead of becoming a vehicle to expedite ministry, it becomes an entity that has validity in and of itself. Our time is, is up here, but let me just say this to you, gentlemen, that the purpose, my objective this morning, was to affirm you in the role to which God has called you. That was my objective. But the propensity will always be in the direction of creating, measuring, and controlling. And there will always be people looking over your shoulder who want to play poker with your chips. And it's an axiom of life, gentlemen, that it is fun to play poker with another man's chips. It produces sweaty armpits to play poker with your own. I beg your pardon? I'm saying to you that that whenever the laity have the hand of God on them, and God prospers their enterprise, there will always be men standing in the wings who want to organize it and control it. doesn't matter. I'm saying that the guy who does it ends up being a professional. That's why I said, when I said he has a vested interest in the system, temporal system. The professional is not the guy who gets the degree the professional is the guy who tries to create, measure, and control the work of God. And that as you are out there doing the work of the ministry, understand that the God discharged you to do it. And you are not illegitimate because you're not part of this group or part of that group. You are a priest in the same sense that the men were in the pre-Sinai days. You have legitimacy by virtue of the fact that you are endowed by the gifts, with the gifts of God and then indwelt by the Spirit of God. Are we together? Now 
God may call you to be in union with another group of people for this particular enterprise or for that particular enterprise. That's dealer's choice. But don't ever feel constrained or obligated to do it. Only by the Holy Spirit. For no other reason. You are legitimate by virtue of the fact, again I say, by virtue of the fact that you have the Spirit of God living in you and you have the gifts. Are we together? Let me turn it over to you.